Hey, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. Hope everybody's feeling good. Had a good morning so far. All right. Yes. That's the enthusiasm I'm talking about right there. Amazing. The, so, well, just a couple things I want to draw your attention to. First of all, if, if you haven't been able to make it to class, the Bible classes, we're sharing testimonies, which, you know, if we describe it that way, it sounds like, okay, yeah, testimonies, that sounds fine. But if you describe it by saying, we're hearing from people how God has intervened in various moments in their lives to draw them to himself, that's pretty exciting because there are those moments in your life and you can recognize your moments in their story and you can see what God's doing in their story. So we appreciate uh, Tracy and Matt Sharon this morning. Very unbelievable to hear that, but recognize many moments of my own story in that as well. And one of the things that really uh, stood out to me was thinking about like, what, what is happening in your life right now that maybe 10 or 15 years somebody else will share in their testimony about that being this pivotal interaction that they had that drew them back to Christ, something you did or said that drew them back to Christ. And you just, who knows what, what role you play in somebody else's story. And so just be aware of that. When I was in college, I think I was 19 years old at the time, I met this girl that I thought was uh, really cute and she lived in Oklahoma, and I lived in Denver. And I thought if there was a way that I could go see her somehow, that would be really awesome. Now, I didn't have a car at the time, so I was, you know, we were just snail mailing back and forth. But somebody told me that uh, there was this youth rally that was taking place in Hutchinson, Kansas. And 19's kind of on the cusp, so I figured maybe I could sneak under the radar a little bit and attend this youth rally. So uh, me and two other guys drove from Denver, Colorado, all the way to Hutchinson, Kansas. You know, it's a long drive, about eight hours. We started at 10 o'clock at night after we had all gotten off work and got, we started at 10 o'clock at night, which is just as a dumb starting point anyway. Drove all night, got to Hutchinson, in Kansas in time for the youth rally, sat there for the youth rally. I mean, we were there for God, you know, sat there, listened to the sermons, did the youth rally stuff, you know, took it all in. And she was there. That was kind of the plus. And so we stayed as long as we could. We dragged it out as long as we could in Hutchinson, Kansas. And then because this was Bible college, one of the guys in the car had agreed to preach at this tiny little church in Kimball, Nebraska on Sunday morning. So Friday night, 10 o'clock, all the way to Hutchinson, Kansas, no sleep, stay awake all day, I'm sure like this, listening to sermons, you know, for God, and then driving all the way back to Kimball, Nebraska, um, another overnight. And we arrived at Kimball, Nebraska at this small church, one of the guys had to preach, literally got there, went inside the church building and laid down on the front of the stage because we were just exhausted until people started coming into church and they were like, oh, guess what? better go. You know, this is going to be a quality worship service, as you can imagine. And, uh, and then that guy preached, and then we did lunch, and then we, I mean, I still to this point had not slept, and then drove back to Denver. So about 36 hours, no sleep, just to see this girl. Now, that's the kind of stuff you do when you're 19, right? You know, if that kind of, those kind of opportunities present themselves when you're 44, you're just kind of like, no. <laughs> I guess it wasn't meant to be, honey. <laughs> um, so was it worth it? Was it worth it? I, I, I don't know. On Saturday, it'll be 22 years of marriage for me and that girl from Oklahoma. So I'm, I think it was... You might have to ask her if it's worth it. 
funny, just a little aside, in the car with me was my now brother-in-law who also wanted to meet a girl who's sitting over there. And I think you're coming up on 23 years. Yeah, 23 years. So 22 years, 23 years. So like it kind of worked out okay. You know, 36 hours for 23 years of marriage, I think works out. But uh, the point I want to emphasize here is that there's these moments in life where you just so desperately are, are chasing after something, longing for something, pursuing something, that you're willing to push back a lot of signs that say, you know, you should stop here in, in a good way, because something that you want is on the other side of that barrier. Today will be our final sermon in this series called The Happiness of Pursuit. And the idea is, is that we were designed by God to pursue God. That's, it, that's innate in you. There's nothing you can do about it. You can stifle it. You can chase other things. You can try to fill that with other dreams and other pursuits. But at some point in your life, you will come to the understanding that this is how God designed you. And for you to have the most out of life, the, the most sense of belonging and purpose and meaning in life, that you will have to reorient yourself to the pursuit of God. And some of us don't, don't realize this till way late in life. Some of us are way older than we should be before we realize this is actually where satisfaction and meaning comes from because we're designed by God to pursue God. The pursuit of God is at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple, meaning that at some point somebody portrayed Christ in such a way that we were so compelled by him that we made a decision to neglect other pursuits for the pursuit of Christ. And that is what a disciple is. That's what it's about. So when we talk about the happiness pursuit, we're talking about discipleship. Most of you in this room made a conscious choice to pursue Jesus. And it's inspiring to hear about those moments in life when that happened from other people's stories. But actually, for all of us, there are many such moments of clarity and reorientation. It's not just one time that happens. It happens over and over again in life. For example, there's a, there's a variety of I love you's that you can say to your spouse, right? There's a variety. Like, for example, you remember the first time you said it to them or they said it to you? And maybe if you were the one that said it first, there was a lot of angst because you thought, are they going to reciprocate? Are they going to say it back to me? Is this going to, or is this going to end the relationship? Because there's really only one or two ways that can go. I love you. Well, that's interesting. Hey, I got to be somewhere. You know, that could be a bad result. There's that. There's that I love you. There's like a wedding day I love you that's the result of all this planning and preparation. You come to this moment and everything's perfect and the flowers and the lights and the photographer and everything's just so and you exchange vows and you say I love you and it's, it's I would say it's probably a relatively easy I love you at that moment. There's also the I love you that's just the casual end of a phone conversation. A lot of spouses end the phone conversation with I love you. That's not a sign of a good or bad marriage. It's just some things we do. And in fact, for some of us, it's gotten a little too casual because you found yourself throwing it in at the end of other conversations with people who aren't your spouse. Like the clerk at the dentist office, like, whoops, <laughs> I'm just really excited to have my teeth done. Sorry about that. But then there's the, uh, the post-argument. Uh, the mending bridges, I love you, where you've had some conflict and there's something that maybe still your expectations at this moment have not been completely realigned, but you know that this is the person that you want to, you want to rebuild this connection. And that I love you is pretty hard, actually. 
That's a hard one because you feel it as a choice, maybe not so much as a feeling. And that's a hard one, and I think it's substantial. In some ways, maybe that I love you is more substantial than the original one because you're recognizing a deep cost that is involved in that sort of I love you. Same thing with following Jesus. There are moments in our lives where God just reveals truth to us and we're like, well, I want to be like Christ. I want to go to church. I want to meet people who are at church. I want to be in a small group. I want to do this. And you're filled with that, um, that movement and that excitement. But there will come times in your life where you're confused and you're uncertain and you're wondering, why is this happening? What's going on? And you have to make what we could call a second decision or third or fourth or 20th decision of disciples to say, no, I still want to follow Christ. And those decisions are so crucial. They're so important to say that I still want to follow even when I'm confused, even when Christianity is not producing the results that I expected. I still want to follow. And we're all going to be faced with those decisions. They're not going to be an easy decision to say, I still love you. I still will follow. But they are going to be good because they're substantial. I want you to Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 6. And we're going to kind of walk through, it's a, it's a large passage of Scripture, and it's good. Unfortunately, it's one of those passages of Scripture that's often just kind of been turned into a coloring page children's story, where it's just sort of two-dimensional truth, and we don't really dig into or peel back the layers of what's going on in this text. And so the basic story is Jesus is feeding 5,000, well, men, according to the text. So there's probably a lot more people based on the way that they counted. But he's feeding 5,000. So Jesus is drawing these enormous crowds. So let's kind of drop ourselves into that, that story. Jesus is wandering around. He's healing people. There's signs. There's miracles. There's some momentum being built. More and more people are being drawn to Jesus. And so he's found himself out in the wilderness, and there's this big crowd. You can just imagine. Imagine this dust cloud of this crowd on the horizon walking toward him. And they're starting to think, the disciples are starting to think about the logistics of this situation. Like what in the world? We're out in the middle of nowhere. People are going to start getting hungry and cranky. Like, well, I don't know that we want to be in that situation. And I actually checked this out because I had never had this thought, but there weren't restaurants in the time of Christ. You just couldn't go to like Pizza Hut. You know, you couldn't McDonald's drive through get a little Chick-fil-A. That didn't exist. They had inns for travelers, but it's like if you were going out for the day, you had to bring your lunch with you or you had to rely on the hospitality of somebody that you were walking by, which is why hospitality was such a big deal in the first century. But there weren't any restaurants. So when they're like, when you've got this crowd of more than 5,000 people and they're all going to be hungry and cranky, you're kind of like, what, what are we going to do? I mean, we can't just phone up Domino's and say, hey, what is your biggest special? Because we're going to need a lot of that. What are you going to do? And Jesus says, well, we'll take care of it. And of course, you know the story, the five loaves, two fish, the whole thing. I mean, you know, this one kid out of the whole crowd thought to pack a lunch. And then there's this buffet and it's this miracle. And it's a story. And we tell kids and we give them coloring pages and it's wonderful. But imagine living like, like what that meant to those people. Just that story. And let's just try to think this beyond the two dimension of the coloring page. If you decided in the first century Israel that, you know, like, hey, honey, you know what really sounds good is like a good wood-fired pizza, some basil and tomato. You know what you would have to do? You'd have to plant a garden 
That's how you'd have to start with that. You couldn't just run to the grocery store to get something. You'd have to plant a garden. You'd be at, we have to go get some tomato seeds. And in about three to four months, this is going to be really delicious. We're going to have to harvest. We're going to have to tend. Like, this was a big deal. There was a lot of foresight that had to go in to what you were going to eat down the road. So you can imagine when Jesus is like, well, here's a buffet. You can have all the bread and fish you want. People loved it. They thought, this is amazing. It's mind-blowing. Imagine what a free meal for more than 5,000 people sounds like. That would be pretty awesome. That would be amazing. So I want you to jump into the text in John chapter 6, verse 14. So when the people saw the sign, this is the food, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. In fact, they say, perceiving, verse 15, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. They were like, this guy's got to be in charge. This is the one. He gave us, why does he have to be in charge? What's his resume? Well, we got a free lunch. He's the one. That's how big of a deal it was. So Jesus, you know, he didn't want that sort of power. He withdrew again uh, to the mountain by himself. So he's like, I'm, I'm out of here. This is not for me. I'm not trying to go the king route. That's not what this is about. I was trying to prove to you that I am somebody special that you should listen to, but I'm not about to be your king. The crowd, though, I mean, you just imagine this crowd is with Jesus. They're on his side. The 12 have to be thinking, this is amazing. We got in on the ground level with Jesus. We got in on this rabbi before anybody had heard about him. It was probably like buying, you know, Apple, Microsoft stock back in the day, and all of a sudden it's really paying off. You got in early on the ground floor, and now all of a sudden the crowd, the nation, they want to make this guy king, and you're thinking, we're going to get good seats. We're going to have positions of power. This is awesome. And then, of course, Jesus bails. Now, I want you to see what happens next. So that's the setup to the story. But look at verse 24. Jump down to verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, because he's literally hiding in the mountains. Do you think Jesus was an introvert? <laughs> yeah, I think so too. He was like, I'm out. I'm out. He's hiding in the mountains from the crowd. When they saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, remember, I highlighted the word seeking because that's been one of the key words of this series is to seek Jesus. And so they're seeking Jesus in a very literal sense. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? What's going on? Jesus answered them, truly, truly. And this is what he said when he was like, I really want to break it down for you guys and let you know. I want to look you in the eyes, grab you by the shoulders and tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw a sign that pointed to who I truly am, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's the only reason. You just want another free lunch. And the crowd is thinking, well, yeah, yeah, that's that. Sure, that's not a bad part of the deal. You're not here because of a spiritual reality. You're here because of a buffet. That's why you're here. You know, and sometimes churches do that too. We're like, hey, come to this event. We'll have free food, you know. Sometimes it gets people, but there's a spiritual reality Jesus is trying to point toward with all this. Look at what he says in verse 27. He says, don't work for the food that perishes. You're working so hard for this free lunch. You got in the boat. You went to the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee. Work that hard. Put that kind of effort for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And so the crowd's thinking, okay, all right. So what do we got to do? This is verse 28. What do we have to do to do the works of God? So what do we have to do to get that eternal life bread is what they're saying. And you start thinking, okay, maybe the crowd is starting to get it. Maybe they're starting to realize that that buffet was just a sign that Jesus was someone special and to, should be listened to. So they're asking the right question. And then Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This is verse 29, that you believe 
in him whom he has sent. And Jesus is, he hasn't quite connected all the dots, but he's laying out all the breadcrumbs, pun intended, for them to try to pick up on what's going on. Like the son of man, there's eternal life, there's eternal bread, there's something good, there's something more. The son of man will provide this eternal life. And are you starting to see what's going on? Verse 30, they said to him, then this is funny. They said, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? This is, I think this is hilarious to me because remember 24 hours earlier, they had gotten a free lunch and they're saying, okay, Jesus, you're trying to tell us you're somebody special. Can you give us a sign? And Jesus is like, do you not remember what happened 24 hours ago? The reason that you're here is because of that sign. Um, but this is their suggestion. So this is the crowd. Think about this. Think about the subtext here. This is hilarious to me. That what sign that we may see and believe you, what work can you perform? And in verse 31, the crowd says this. You know, you remember, I'm thinking back to the Bible classes we learned about our fathers wandering around the wilderness. It seems like God provided for them. Didn't God provide manna? As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you see what they're suggesting? They're suggesting, hey, that meal yesterday was really, really, really good. Can we get some more of that? And Jesus said, don't work so hard for that food. Don't work so hard for that bread. Okay, you want us to believe you? Why don't you give us a sign? I don't know. Just think it off the top of my head. How about um, some bread? And you're just like, come on. And that's why verse 32 says, then Jesus rolled his eyes at the crowd and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's a modern translation. It's not there. I just added that because I imagine that's how Jesus felt. Like, uh, come on, seriously, seriously, it's just, it always comes back to this bread for you. This is ridiculous. And I think Jesus is starting to get a little frustrated with the crowd. And I think he's going to start, maybe this isn't a good way to say this, but he's going to start antagonizing the crowd a little bit to try to say, listen, I, I'm not interested in this, what you're, what you're pursuing. I want people who really acknowledge who I am. And so he's going to do some things that seem intentionally confusing. We're going to read a text that is confusing. It was confusing to the crowd. It was confusing to the 12. It's going to be confusing to us. I think Jesus is creating a moment for that second decision of discipleship. And now Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm going to sift the wheat from the chaff a little bit. I'm going to prune the trees a little bit. I'm going to find out who's really in this, who's really serious. It'll be a little test. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, there it is again, where he's saying, this is, listen up, this is important. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Remember, he's still, he hasn't connected the dots, but he's saying the bread from heaven, life to the world. Are you listening? Eternal life. And they're like, oh, sir, give us this bread. This sounds good. What kind of newfangled recipe do you have? And then verse 35, he's, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. You're not getting it. It's me. I'm saying me. You should pursue me. I'm the person that's going to fill your life. Don't worry about the bread. Worry about the bread of life. Now, I realize we read that and it's like, it's kind of odd. It's a little different. It's a little strange. But Jesus is about to get really strange. You ready for this? Verse 51, jump down a little bit. If anyone eats this bread, the bread of life, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now the crowd is like, what? What are you talking about? The bread is your flesh. Jesus, you are losing me in the metaphor. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And the metaphor is just going right over their heads. And, and honestly, it goes over our heads to some degree, too. 
You know, as a public speaker, there's so many times where I get done speaking and then somebody will say, oh, I really appreciated this point you made that I'm like, I didn't say that at all. What are you talking about? Like somehow between what I said or what I intended to say and what they heard, something got lost in translation. And maybe sometimes that's the Holy Spirit, like protecting them from what I'm saying and teaching them something better. But other times, like last week, we got in the car after church, uh, me and Liam got in the car and Liam was like, dad. Why were you telling us to worship other gods? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, you were saying that we should pray to other gods. And I was like, I think, I think that's the opposite of what I was trying to say, Liam. And, he's, and, I, and so I explained what you mean. And he said, you got up there and you were talking about the Greek gods. And if we want to have, you know, success in the hunt or success in love or whatever, we've got to pray to these gods. And I was like, no, that's, that's not what I was trying to say. I'm really sorry, buddy. And now he's got this altar to Zeus in his bedroom, and it's a whole mess. And <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really trying to walk that back. I mean, but communicating complex ideas, it, it is hard. It is tricky sometimes. And, and Jesus is a brilliant teacher, so I'm not trying to undermine his ability uh, to teach, but it, the crowd is not getting it. And so Jesus, rather than saying, okay, let me say it this way, he literally doubles down on this weird metaphor. Look at verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, he's not letting him get out of this or like assume the best about what he's saying. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is like zombie, weird stuff. By the way, this verse has never once appeared as a piece of art on anybody's wall. It just doesn't. This is not the type of stuff that we, we highlight. It's weird. And he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Like he's really digging into this. I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And I think some of the crowd was like, all right, there must be something we're not putting together. He surely can't be saying my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And then he's like, yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm with the crowd. Okay. I'm with the crowd. I'm like, this, I don't get it, Jesus. This is really weird. The crowd is weirded out, and Jesus just doubles down. And then in verse 60, many of the disciples heard this, and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Literally, they're saying, this hurts our ears. It's offensive. It hurts our ears. Maybe just a quick aside, because some of you are like thinking about well, what is he saying? And, and you've probably heard this passage read many times for like a Lord's Supper talk before, you know, we take the, the emblems of the, the juice and the, the bread. It's not talking about the Lord's Supper. But sometimes we anachronistically think of what Jesus is saying here as referencing the Lord's Supper as something that was going to be implemented years later. And it's just, it's two different things, but they're both pointing to the same thing. But maybe a way to kind of think through this idea. Like, why is Jesus saying, eat my flesh? It's weird, right? It's strange. Why would he say it that way? I think, and this is a poor analogy, but forgive me, because I think it works somewhat, but there's, there's definitely flaws. But let's say you have a toddler, you parents, you have a toddler uh, who gets sick with some unnamed virus. <laughs> we won't name which one. But if you've got a toddler that gets sick with this virus, most parents, I would, I would assume most parents, would willingly expose themselves to that sickness in order to heal that toddler, in order to provide them the food and the nurturing and the comfort that they need. Maybe there's a few parents who'd be like, okay, you're on your own. But most parents would willingly allow themselves to be sick in order to heal the child. 
What Jesus is saying is, you are going to take my life from me so that you can have life. The child consumes the health of the parent in order for the child to get healthy. We consume the life of Jesus in order for us to have life. And I think we can begin to see, okay, I see what Jesus is getting at. I wish he had said it in a nicer way, but whatever. Verse 60, again, when many of the disciples heard this, they said, this hurts our ears, Jesus. Uh, who, who do you expect to be the target audience here? And then verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, after this statement, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That was it. Jesus, you, you, <laughs> we were in when you were talking about like, hey, go the extra mile and the Beatitudes. We liked all that stuff. Whatever you got going on here, this is weird and I don't like it and we're out. So I just want you to imagine yourself in this moment. I mean, who knows how it would have played out, but you've got this huge crowd and they came with these high expectations of another free lunch. That's all they wanted. Remember, they kept redirecting the conversation back to bread, back to lunch. And Jesus isn't having it. They're clamoring for this magic trick, another meal. And Jesus, no, no, no. In fact, I'm gonna lean into something that is going to be very unpopular in the moment. In fact, maybe even confusing. He's going to sift the wheat from the chaff. And he says, do you really want to be filled? Well, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And I imagine these bizarre words just sort of hanging in the air. And I imagine there's this awkward silence. And somebody off in the distance like <laughs> coughs a little bit like, this is weird. Or maybe somebody who didn't hear as well or is near the back of the crowd says, what did he, what did he say? And somebody tries to explain like, man, I don't know. This is... And then slowly people kind of gather up their stuff families, individuals, and they, they start leaving. They're like, well, okay, well, this is, I don't know. I, Jesus seemed like he had something going for him, but we're out now. And I imagine the way I'm thinking of this story is that Jesus is standing there and he's talking to this, these people and they're just kind of walking past him, like just like giving him this look, like what in the world was that? Like you could have just given us some bread, man. You didn't have to get all weird there. And then the crowd leaves and you get down to the point where the whole crowd is gone except for the twelve. And then Jesus poses a question to them. This is so fascinating because Jesus looks at them and he says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Because this is your out. This is it. This is that second decision of discipleship. You, it was easy on the Sea of Galilee when you were mending fishing nets for your dad and I came along and said, will you follow me? That was easy, but now it's not going to be so easy. Do you still want to follow me? Are you still going to pursue me? Are you still after me? Are you still oriented toward me? Here's, here's your out. Everybody else is leaving. And it might have been pretty easy for those guys to be like, you know what, maybe it is time to get back to the old fishing business. Maybe it is time to get out of here. This is such an important moment because we have to ask ourselves this question. What happens when our pursuit of God through Christ leads one direction, but we're worried that our happiness and our fulfillment is a different direction? What do we do when we're met with that fork in the road? How, how do we think through that? How do we decide? What do we do when we're confused by faith? When something's going on in our life that does not seem like it fits with what we had expected Christ to do. What do we do when the crowd leaves? When the crowd walks away and says, this is getting too weird for me. What do we do when we're faced with that second decision of discipleship? Maybe the first one was tough for you. I, I, it probably was. It probably was for a lot of us. But the second one's really tough. Because that's where we have to decide. Even when we don't completely understand where the end of the road is, is 
what are we going to do? The second decision is really tough. And so let me offer you just two challenges as we wrap up this morning. Number one, I would say a lot of us just need to pick a path. I think a lot of us have been waiting at that crossroads for a long time, like maybe, and then no, I should do this. And then we're just kind of going back and forth. Like, yeah, maybe I'll pursue Christ or on Sundays, like, yeah, that seems good. And then, you know, the rest of the week, we're kind of doing other things. And I think some of us just need to pick a path. Just go with it. Just, just decide once, for all, once and for all which direction you're heading. Just pick, pick a direction. Some of us just need to make that second decision of discipleship because right now your life is being pulled in two separate directions. But the, the second thing I'd like to challenge you with is, is, well, let me set it up this way. You're probably very aware of this because you live in the world, but our culture, our nation is undergoing a huge shift right now. And it's, it's hard to really kind of think it through because there's so many crazy things happening. It's hard to see one thing at a time. You know, there's a pandemic and politics and there's racial tension. In the middle of all of that, our culture is shifting away from sort of a presumption that someone who wants to follow Christ and go to church and orient their lives around these things is sort of culturally normal and appropriate. That, that's, that's been sort of our assumption for centuries in our culture. I'm not saying that people always did that well, but I'm saying that's kind of like the way people, you know, their Ten Commandments were posted outside the courthouses, you know, that sort of thing. And our culture is shifting away to a different center of gravity, meaning that the norms of Christianity are not going to seem so normal anymore. When you say, I'm not sure that that choice or that lifestyle, that way of thinking or that way of being in the world is good, people are going to be like, what's wrong with you? You're being bigoted. You're being, you are wrong. And, and you're going to have to deal with like, what do I do when what I believe Jesus is teaching or I believe scripture teaches me and the crowd diverge? What do I do? I think for a long time, and I got to be careful here because this is really nuanced, but I believe for a long time our culture and Christianity were kind of like one was on a highway and one was on a frontage road and they were both heading the same direction. So it felt like they were the same, but they weren't really. They were going different places, but it felt like you could just kind of pick your feet up and drift along with culture. And it looked pretty similar to someone who was choosing to follow Christ because our culture had a lot of norms and values that had to do uh, with Christianity and presumptions around Christianity. But that's shifting. Now, there's statistics, and it's, they're, they're crazy statistics um, about these shifts. And I, I think there's some nuance to those statistics, but there's a lot of Christian leaders who are doing a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of, oh, what is going to happen, and fingernail chewing and nervousness and anxiety. I'm not as smart as those guys. I don't share their concern at all, at all. I'm not nervous about the shift in our culture. And one of the reasons I'm not nervous about it is because, well, for one, some of what people are distancing themselves isn't really Jesus. It's Christians who had mixed Jesus with other things, and they're rejecting a version of Christianity that wasn't real anyway. But I think for a lot of us, I think we need, as disciples, we need clarifying moments where the road splits and we have to decide which way we're going to go. We cannot go between two paths. And our culture for a long time kind of let us drive parallel to Christianity. But that's changing. And we are going to have to decide. 
as disciples. Where are we going? What are we going to stand up for and believe and advocate for and value? And sometimes you're going to even find those diversions within Christianity of people who have this version of Christianity that doesn't really seem like Jesus, and they're upset at you because you're not following that version of Christianity that is wrapped up in politics and culture and weirdness. But what do we do when the crowd walks away and we're left with Jesus? And we're like, oof. Jesus is saying some stuff I don't know. What do I do? What, how, what do we do? Peter says something that I think we, we're familiar with in verse 68, but Simon Peter speaks up for the guys, and he answered him. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, there's, there's no other options. We know that we don't understand what's at the end of this road, but we know that this is the only road. We don't know that we understand what's going on, but we know that this is the only way. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I don't want to define myself simply in contrast to culture. I think that's just as silly as anything. But I want to define myself in commitment to Christ. I want to follow Christ, not just reject culture, but I want to follow Christ. To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Some of us in the room need to make the first decision of discipleship. You know, maybe you grew up in church and you just have never decided, this is what my life is going to be about, and you just need to make that first decision. But many of us need to make that second decision of discipleship to say, yeah, I've been kind of trying to balance two different roads, and they are verging off in different directions, and which way am I going to go?